You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We have, as a church, been working through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, and today we come to the second half of chapter 13, which is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. We love this chapter. I think we like it because it's short, uh, it's poetic, and it's about a subject that everyone agrees on. Right? It's about love. Nothing controversial about love. Right? Everybody loves love. I think at the same time, though, this beautiful chapter suffers from a couple of things. One, it suffers from over-familiarity. Uh, we, we've, we've heard it so many times that we think we know exactly what it's saying. But as I discovered this week, it may not be saying exactly what I thought it was always saying. It also suffers from over-sentimentality. Like some of these verses have been lifted right out of context and stuck on artwork and pillows and coffee mugs and greeting cards. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And we hear that and we're like, oh, that's right. Love is the greatest. <laughs> I love love. Right? We go to a wedding and they read 1 Corinthians 13 and they come to verse eight, love never ends. And we're like, oh, that's right. Look how in love they are. Look how they're looking at each other right now. Love is never gonna end for them. And listen, that might be appropriate at a wedding to read this passage, but this is not really about romantic love, right? There's nothing sentimental about 1 Corinthians 13. It's actually a rebuke. It's part of a larger rebuke. Sorry for the buzzkill there on this favorite chapter of ours, right? This chapter falls right in the middle of a section of this letter where Paul is talking about the worship life of the church. In chapters 11 through chapter 14, uh, and to zoom in a little more specifically, he's talking about the spiritual gifts and how the gifts get used in the church or in their case, misused in the church because they weren't using them with love. The Corinthian church was an extremely gifted church. Right? It was made up of successful and talented and influential people. It reminds me of a church I know, right? It was made up of people who had been powerfully gifted by the Holy Spirit. Alistair Begg says that Corinth was a sizzling church. I love that. Right? It was, it was, it was dynamic. It was alive. It was the kind of church you'd want to go to. It's like, wow, something's happening there. I want to go to that church. But he also says it was full of show-offs. People using their gifts to impress and he says it was full of spiritual babies, like people who thought they were mature because of their giftedness. But listen, spiritual gifting does not equal spiritual maturity, right? Giftedness does not necessarily mean godliness, right? The, the truest mark of God's work in a community is not spiritual gifts. The truest mark of God's work in a community is love, because unlike the spiritual gifts, love never ends. Love never ends. Love lasts forever. Uh, 
Last week, we talked about the priority of love. This week, we're talking about the permanence of love, the permanence of love. And there's three things that we see here in this passage. Number one, the spiritual gifts are not permanent. They're not permanent. Number two, the spiritual gifts are not perfect. But number three, love is both. Love is both. Love is both permanent and it's perfect. Let's look at how the spiritual gifts are not permanent. Look at verse eight. 1 Corinthians 13, verse eight. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. One of our Providence members, Ernie Pfeiffer, told me one time about a, um, a communication strategy used in the military called BLUF, B-L-U-F. Are you familiar with this? It stands for bottom line up front, meaning if you're telling me something, uh, if, you're, if you're giving me a report, don't start with a bunch of peripheral details and then kind of finally meander around to the main point. Start with the main point. Give me the bottom line up front. That's what Paul's doing here in verse eight. Verse eight says, uh, love is permanent and the spiritual gifts are not. Love is permanent and the spiritual gifts are not. That's the bottom line of this entire passage. He says there, love never ends. Some translations read, love never fails. It literally says love never falls. Love, love never collapses. It will always be around. It will exist forever, even in eternity. But in contrast, prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away. So Paul doesn't list all the spiritual gifts here. He just picks a particular triad of the gifts. He picks prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And I think he picks those three on purpose because these were the most prized gifts among the Corinthians. The speaking gifts, the gifts of knowledge and wisdom. We've seen from the very beginning of this letter that the Corinthian culture valued things like wisdom and knowledge and rhetoric. And, and these cultural values had just rolled over right into the church. And so the Corinthian Christians, they, they, they valued the outwardly impressive gifts. That's what they really liked, right? Like, wow, that guy's a great preacher. He can really communicate spiritual truth in a way that I can understand. Whenever he's talking, I feel like God's speaking directly to me. Or like, wow, she's able to talk to God directly, like praise God and pray to God in a language that I don't have. That is so impressive. Or like, wow, that person has so much spiritual, theological knowledge. I can't, I can't believe how insightful and knowledgeable and gifted they are in the scriptures. And Paul says, hey, all these gifts are good, but they're gonna pass away, right? They're, they're gonna be obsolete someday because one day they'll no longer be needed. Like when Jesus comes back and his kingdom is fully present, we won't need the preaching of the word. We won't need a prophetic word because the word himself will be in our midst. When Jesus comes back, we won't need prayer languages to communicate with God because we'll have direct access to God. We won't need someone with a gift of knowledge to help us understand all the spiritual truths coming at us because we'll already understand, we'll know. 
The spiritual gifts are good and they have a good purpose, but it is a temporary purpose. The gifts are given to us to build up the church, to complete the mission of God in what we call the time between the times. That's what we're living now. The time between Jesus' first coming and his coming again to make all things new. We're living in that time now and that's when the spiritual gifts are necessary. Paul gives an illustration to make his point more clear. In verse 11, look at verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. With this illustration, Paul is not criticizing children. He's not downgrading children in any way. There are ways in which children communicate there are ways in which children see the world that are completely appropriate for who they are, right? But someday, he's saying, they'll grow out of those things. Like someday, childish ways of speaking and thinking and reasoning will no longer fit with who they are. Like if a four-year-old child came running down this aisle right now to join their family in their seats, we would think that's cute and completely normal. We would smile, maybe even laugh, right? But if an, an adult did the same thing, right? Like running down this aisle, you're like, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> Why is he running, right? Somebody call security. Like, don't run at me, right? <laughs> Paul is saying, when you grow up, you no longer think like a child. You no longer act like a child. And in the same way, when the church is one day fully grown up, fully mature in eternity, we'll no longer need the spiritual gifts. The gifts are not permanent. And they're not a sign of spiritual maturity, right? You can be really gifted and still really immature. The Corinthians were measuring themselves by their gifts. They were thinking because they had certain gifts that they had arrived spiritually speaking. And Paul says, hey, those gifts are going away, right? The, the, the things you're putting so much stock in are gonna be obsolete someday. So the application for us is the same as it was for the Corinthians. Don't measure yourself by your gifts or your giftedness. Don't measure others by their gifts or giftedness. Gifts are not the mark of authentic Christianity and they're not the goal of the Christian life. Love is, right? So use your gifts to build others up in love, to build the body up in love, to edify the church. That's why we have the gifts. We already saw this in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse seven. To each of us is given a manifestation of the spirit, a gift. Why? For the common good, right? The spiritual gifts have a good purpose, but it's a temporary purpose, right? They're not permanent. But secondly, they're not perfect. They're not perfect. They're, they're incomplete. They're partial. Look at verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, for we know in part, like partially, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he says, we know in part, meaning all of our knowledge about God, all of it is incomplete, right? It, it, it's partial. 
It's imperfect. We might know God truly in true ways, but we don't know him completely. God is like the ocean. Like I would never claim to know everything there is to know about the ocean just because I've been to the beach a few times, right? Well, I've been down to Port Aransas, been over to Hilton Head, been to Dustin. I think I got a pretty firm grasp on the ocean. I would never say that because the ocean is vast. It's deep, it's mysterious. There's no way I could ever explore the whole thing. I know true things about the ocean, but I only know in part, right? He also says we prophesy in part, meaning all our words about God are incomplete. Like our words about God are imperfect. They may be true words, but they're limited words. For example, hopefully I'm up here today saying true things about God. And some of you are monitoring that more closely than others, right? (laughs) Maybe I'll hear from you if I'm in error in some way. Our words about God can be true. They can even be prophetic and powerful, but they're only partial. All spiritual gifts are only partial. Even a gift like healing is only partial, right? Remember remember in Acts chapter three, when Peter and John healed uh, the, the guy who was lame, he was begging in the temple. This was a guy who hadn't been able to use his legs his entire life. But all of a sudden, it says he was up leaping and dancing and, and, and praising God. And you read that and you're like, that's a pretty good healing. That seems like a pretty complete healing. But even that healing was imperfect. Why? Because I assume that guy eventually died one day, right? And so any healing that we experience in this age, even if it's directly from God, is actually more like remission, Right? We just kind of go into remission until one day our body finally gives out. Like healing is partial. Gifts of the spirit are only partial. But, verse 10, when the perfect comes, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I love that word perfect. What a word. It means complete. It means finished. It has to do with the consummation of all things, when all things are set right and nothing is lacking and nothing is flawed and nothing is broken, perfect. And apparently we haven't experienced the perfect yet because Paul says when the perfect comes, hasn't happened yet. He's talking about when Jesus returns, that's when the perfect will be ushered in. And in verse 12, he gives another illustration to help us understand what he's saying. Look at verse 12, new illustration. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, partially. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He is contrasting two ages here, two eras. He's contrasting now and then, right? We, we live in the now, not in the then. Things are imperfect now, right? But they'll be perfect then. We can't have the perfect now, but we will have the perfect then. And we shouldn't confuse the now and the then. We shouldn't mix them up, which is what the Corinthians were doing, right? They were acting like they had, ar- had already arrived at the then, 
at the perfect because of their giftedness. They thought, it doesn't get any better than this. I have what I need. They were thinking they were living in the then, but Paul says, no, no. For now, we can only see God and the things of God as if we're looking in a mirror, like at an indirect reflection. What we see is not false, it's true, but it's not complete, right? It's not perfect. But he says the time will come then when we'll see God face to face, face to face. Reminds us of what God said about Moses in Numbers chapter 12. Listen to this from Numbers chapter 12. God said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to the prophet in visions. I speak to the prophet in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. With Moses, I speak face to face, clearly, and not in a riddle. That word riddle is the same word from 1 Corinthians 12, the word dimly. It's the word enigma, enigmatic. I don't speak enigmatically to Moses. I speak clearly to him, face to face, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So God didn't speak to Moses indirectly, like through a dream or a vision or a riddle or a mirror. He spoke to him directly, face to face, which is way better. It's way better. It's like when I was dating my wife, Amy, we dated long distance, and I had a photo of her. And I would look at that photo when we were apart. This is before we had billions of photos of ourselves on iPhones, right? And it's before FaceTime, didn't have that option. All I had was that photo of her. And it was a true depiction of her, right? But it wasn't perfect because it was just an image of her. It was just a reflection of her. Now, when we would see each other on the weekends, I would see her face to face. You think I still had that photo out on the weekends? No, because face to face is way better. It's way better. And one day, this is saying we will see God directly, not indirectly, right? And it'll be perfect. Perfect, far better than it is now, right? He says, look at the end of verse um, 10. He says, or uh, verse 12. He says, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Don't miss how amazing that is that we are fully known by God. God knows us completely, and yet he still loves us. Isn't that incredible? Like if you knew me completely, I think it would be harder for you to love me. You might distance yourself from me, but God doesn't do that. He knows us fully, but through Christ, he draws us near. Why? So we can know him, right? Because he wants us to know his love, both now and then, when we'll experience it perfectly. But don't confuse the now and the then. Like for now, we only know in part, we only prophesy in part. Our spiritual gifts are not perfect. They're only partial, which means we should always have humility when it comes to our gifts, and our abilities and our knowledge. We should never pride ourselves in these things or wear them like they're a badge of honor. Like if we have the gift of knowledge, our knowledge is imperfect. We don't know everything and we're wrong sometimes. We're probably wrong a lot of times, right? So we ought to be humble with our knowledge. If we have the gift of teaching, we don't do it perfectly ever, 
We make mistakes. We have off days. We struggle to find the words. If we have the gift of service, we don't do it perfectly, ever. We struggle with our motives sometimes, or we feel cranky, and we don't want to serve. We don't do it perfectly, but that's okay. That's okay, because the spiritual gifts are not the truest evidence that we know God. They're not. The truest evidence that we know God is love, because while the spiritual gifts are impermanent and imperfect, uh, love is both perfect and permanent. And that's our last thing that we want to look at. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. This is the one we all have memorized without even trying. Verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul introduces another triad here faith, hope, and love. And I think he's intentionally contrasting that triad with the the triad in verse eight at the beginning of the passage, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Because prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will all cease. They're uh, they're not permanent, but he says here that faith, hope, and love abide. They, They remain. So there's a permanence to these spiritual graces, these spiritual virtues, that's not true of the spiritual gifts. The virtues of faith, hope, and love are the essential marks of a Christian. They're essential, right? You you can be a Christian without tongues or prophecy or knowledge or some flashy, noticeable spiritual gift, but you can't be a Christian without faith, hope, and love. They're the defining evidence that God's at work in a person's life. They're the defining evidence that God's at work in a community's life, This triad, faith, hope, and love, shows up in Paul's letters all the time. He uses them in different ways. He puts them in different orders. Uh, It's his shorthand way of talking about genuine, authentic Christian spirituality, right? For example, this is how he opens his letter to the Colossian church. Right in the beginning of Colossians, he says, we always thank God the Father for you, you, Colossians, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, We thank God for you when we pray for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your trust in Christ Jesus. And when we hear of the love that you have for all the saints, he's like, that's amazing. You love the saints. You love the church. That's pretty amazing because the church is hard to love because we're a mess, right? But you do. You love the church. And then he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, because you have a future orientation, because your hope is somewhere else, not in the world as it is today. So how do we know someone is a Christian? Well, a Christian has faith in Christ Jesus, meaning their trust is in him, meaning they're leaning into Jesus, putting all their weight on him as the only source of forgiveness and life and righteousness. A Christian also has hope in Christ Jesus. So hope has to do with what we're living for, what we're longing for. It has a future orientation. Our hope is in what? Jesus coming to set all things right and to resurrect us to new life. That's our hope. Our hope is in the world to come. And finally, a Christian loves like Christ Jesus. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Who's the only one that's ever kept those commands perfectly? Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus, when we become his person, one of his people, 
produces that kind of love in us, right? It's, it's evidence that we belong to him because that kind of love begins to show through us. So an easy way to remember what faith, hope, and love means uh, is leaning, longing, and loving. Leaning, longing, and loving. Uh, the true marks of a Christian uh, are, are leaning into Jesus, right? As the only source of salvation, right? And, and longing for what only Jesus can bring to the world and loving like only Jesus can love. These three remain, they abide, faith, hope, and love. How do they remain though? What does that mean? Some would say that faith and hope don't remain forever because one day faith will be turned to sight, right? One day hope will be realized so we won't need faith and hope anymore in eternity. Yet Paul says here that they do remain along with love. So I think it's actually more accurate to say that faith and hope will exist in eternity just in a different way than we experience them now. Maybe a better way than we experience them now. Uh, I, I will trust Jesus by faith. I will trust him for all eternity. I won't stop trusting him just because I can see him, right? Jesus will always be my hope forever and ever. There'll never be a day, a time in eternity that I don't need Jesus, right? So faith, hope, and love remain. And if those three remain, then why is love the greatest of these? Well, I think the simplest answer to that question is God. God. God doesn't have faith, right? God doesn't need hope, but God is love, right? See, love has always existed and always will exist because God has always existed and always will exist. God is love. Our culture likes to flip that and say love is God, right? Love is what we worship. Love is what will save us. Love is all that we need. Problem with that is love is not a thing in and of itself. It, it has to come from somewhere and it comes from God. So love is not God. God is God. But God always manifests himself in love from eternity to eternity. So he defines love. He's the source of love. He enables love. I wanna end by reading a few verses from 1 John chapter four. Listen to these beautiful verses in 1 John four. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How do you know someone is a Christian? Well, one of the evidences is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, which was shown among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's what love looks like, God sending his only son. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if he loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. 
The greatest of these is love because to act in love is to act like God, right? To, to give ourselves away for the good of others. That's what God did. That's what love is, which is why Paul tells the Corinthians in the first verse of chapter 14, which we'll get to next week, you know what he says in the beginning of chapter 14, verse one? He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. In other words, yes, we should desire the gifts. They're good, desire them, but, but we're to pursue love, right? That's what we give ourselves to because love is the goal of the gifts. Love is the goal of the gifts. And unlike the gifts, love never ends. It never ends. And here's the good news. We can actually love like God loves because he first loved us. See, the gospel that we talk about all the time is not just an example of love for us. It is the enabler of love in our life. Uh, the communion meal, which we have together each week, reminds us of the gospel every week. It reminds us of what love looks like. It reminds us of Romans 5.8. What does love look like? Well, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what love looks like. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the love of God was at the very heart of everything that was happening that night. The love of God was on display uh, on that night. We know that that evening that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his friends and he took bread and after giving thanks for it, uh, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's my blood poured out, shed for you uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And what Jesus was saying at that meal was, this is how you know what love is. The son of God came to give himself that you might have life, that you might experience the love of God and that you might love the world in the same way that God loves the world. And this meal is just a small reminder of that. Let's thank him for it. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.